There is evidence that money in the hands of women is spent differently from money in the hands of men. The global average life expectancy is currently just over 72 years, according to the United Nations. Interestingly, in every single country, life expectancy is higher for women than it is for men. But this wasn't always the case. Empirical evidence gathered by our world and data points to biological, behavioral, and environmental factors that have all contributed to this. Men smoke more often than women, for example, and childbirth mortality rates have dropped. A UBS study found that a higher life expectancy is one of the reasons why women approach long-term financial decisions differently than their male counterparts. Where am I going with all this? I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be exploring a few key economic differences between men and women and what this could mean for family economics at an individual level and for the economic growth of entire countries. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Chertilt, who we met last season in episode two. She is a German macroeconomist who specializes in family economics. What impact do families have on the economy? Well, perhaps more than you think. A lot of the really important decisions are made in the family. Saving decisions happen in the family. Population growth is really important for the overall economy. Fertility decisions obviously made in the family, but also human capital accumulation. So human capital is an important ingredient in growth. And education of children is a decision made in the family. Tertilt's work on family economics has also led her to research the role of women specifically and particularly women who live in developing countries. And there is one question that has guided much of her work. Does money in the hands of women lead to more economic growth? An image is worth a thousand words, and there's one image you often share in slides when you give lectures. On the first row, there's a female character and coins that lead to a baby. On the second row, there's a male character and his coins lead to a beer. What story is this graphic telling us? There's evidence that money in the hands of women is spent differently from money in the hands of men. So women spend a larger fraction of additional income on child-related things, and men spend more on alcohol and tobacco. So that was the starting point for our research. So the obvious question for us was, can one conclude from such empirical evidence that giving money to women is a good development policy? These facts have been used by the World Bank, by the United Nations, by a bunch of development organizations to argue that giving money to women is a good development policy. The rationale being women invest in children, meaning human capital, and that must be growth enhancing. And so my question was, is this necessarily true? What are the men doing with the money? Why are men and women spending the money differently in the first place? And is how they spend it important for policy conclusions. What we did is develop a model where we try to understand the different spending behavior, assuming men and women have the same preferences. So suppose men and women care about children in the exact same way, which seems like a plausible hypothesis. We can still generate these differences in spending behavior because of an efficient allocation of, of tasks. So this really depends on the gender wage gap. And what is the wage gap's role here? Would money be spent differently if pay was equal? 
Women, on average, still make less money than their husbands. Because of that, women have a comparative advantage in the household of being in charge of time-intensive goods, cooking dinners, taking care of the kids, helping with the homework, cleaning the house, watching the garden, and so forth. What makes sense from an economic point of view is that the person who has lower wages is in charge of these public goods in the household, they need more time. Anything related to children is usually very time-intensive. At the same time, if the husbands have more income, it makes sense for them to be in charge of things that are very money-intensive. If there's this division of tasks, if you give a transfer to women, they would spend it more on kids because that's the, the things they're in charge of. That makes sense, particularly when looking at one household at a time. So in lieu of the gender wage gap, the division of household tasks would look fundamentally different here and potentially render this question irrelevant. The gender pay gap is key for the mechanism. The division of tasks in the household happens only because of the gender pay gap. Now there's one caveat to that. So this is assuming there are no other differences. So if on top of that, now you have cultural norms, you have the society somehow uh, leading women to spend more time with children and being more in charge of of child-related activities, then even without a gender pay gap, you would still see some effects. However, even then, I would argue that the size of the effect would still be a function of the gender pay gap. Tell me more about what this means or could mean from a policy perspective. Does this mean with the existing wage gap that giving women more control over household finances would correlate to a higher GDP? It's not so clear because if men are in charge of essentially investment goods, savings for the future, building the house, the fireplace, uh, buying a new tractor, you know, things that are useful for, for production down the road. And essentially you have a shift from human to physical capital. And, you know, then it depends where's the bottleneck. So if, if human capital is, is very scarce, if that's the problem, then giving money to women is a good thing. But if the, the bottleneck in the economy, the scarce resource is physical capital, then maybe giving money to men might be more useful. You have said that the best case scenario for monetary transfers targeted towards women with the intent of boosting economic development happens in countries at an intermediate stage of development. Can you explain this? Whether countries are more in need of physical or human capital is, is very difficult to estimate, obviously. So in that sense, we are not giving easy answers with our research. We're just providing avenues or, or questions to ask. Maybe one can say that at the very early stages of development, so think about very poor countries, they're typically agrarian economies. More fertilizers, tractors, machines is, is more the bottleneck. And then if you go to a little bit more developed countries, at some point, education is really important. So the returns to schooling are high. And in such an economy, uh, it seems more human capital is the bottleneck. So maybe one way to measure this would be to really try to measure the returns from physical capital and the returns from human capital and compare them. In your research, you've also looked at the history of women's rights and how it correlated with economic development throughout time. Let's take a stroll down memory lane, shall we? Historically, economic development and evolution of women's rights is very connected. Go back 200 years in the United States or in Germany, in the United Kingdom, women had essentially no rights, especially married women. Men could essentially own them like a cow. Then it really evolved a lot. I would 
argue there were essentially three different phases. So in the 19th century, women were gaining more economic rights. So the right to own property, the right to sign contracts, and also child custody rights. Then in the early 20th century, in many countries, women gained more political rights. And even later, more in the middle or even 60s and 70s of the 20th century, women were getting more labor market rights. But how or why do economic rights precede political rights? So maybe before answering that question, let me add also that this uh, correlation between women's rights and development, we also see that still today in cross-country data. It's the poor countries today where women have no rights, and it's the rich countries where men and women are almost equal. So the question is sort of about the timing. It seems the obvious thing would have been to think voting rights, political rights came first. Once you're involved in the political process, you can push for the other rights. It's a little bit of a puzzle how women managed to gain economic rights prior to political rights. It was the men who extended voluntarily economic rights to women in the second half of the 19th century. So the obvious question is, what was in it for men? The evolution of women's rights in the 19th century, it was mostly about changes in the family. And so you can actually see that in the political debates around that time. We went through the archives and looked at old newspaper articles. So when they were writing about women's rights, the welfare of children was very often mentioned. People were debating at the time that more rights for women would actually really benefit children and education. The question is, what caused men to voluntarily extend power to women? Women are often in charge of the child-rearing and education. So more power for women means they can exert their influence more, and that means more education and more, ultimately, human capital. What I want to argue was changes in technological progress that increased the returns to human capital. So through industrialization, moving away from a very agricultural economy to a more knowledge-based economy, that made it profitable for men to give up some rights vis-a-vis -vis their own wives. But then more women in the economy overall had more rights, and that ultimately fed into the education of children, and men benefited. I would think that fertility and general population growth plays a pretty important role here, too. Yes, yeah, so there's a very strong link between fertility and development. So over the course of the last 200 years, pretty much all of today's rich countries went through a phase of strong and fast economic development and a stark decline in fertility from something like seven kids per woman to now more like two. So what's the link? The most plausible mechanism is there was an increase in the returns to education. And that, through a quantity-quality trade-off, leads to lower fertility. If to survive in today's economy, I have to educate my children a lot, and that's expensive, I want to put a lot of time in them, nurture them, and so forth, well, then I just cannot have as many. You mentioned earlier the differences between women's rights in developing countries versus the Western world. You've also researched polygynous societies where men have multiple wives, something that is generally illegal in developed countries, minus a few rare exceptions. What is the link that you're seeing happening here? In large parts of sub-Saharan Africa, polygyny is still very common. 
even though it's outlawed now in many countries, but the practice continues. And in most polygynous countries, it's the father's who own daughters. So it goes hand in hand with other restrictions on women. If a father essentially owns a daughter and he can sell her to the highest bidder, then she has no say in her marriage. And so these things interact, uh, polygyny and women's rights. So monogamy can be seen as a public policy tool for both economic development and the advancements of women's rights simultaneously. If one could enforce monogamy, that would be obviously a good thing, but it's difficult. So an alternative policy that might be worth considering is giving more rights to women. Because if daughters are more empowered, then they wouldn't allow their dads to sell them anymore. They would just pick their own husbands. And then the whole mechanism would also break down because it's all based on the ability to sell off daughters. Polygyny, if you just ban it, if people work around it by not officially marrying, there's nothing illegal in any country to just live with two women. But if you change laws to help women, if they can own their own assets, if they have freedom of movement, if they have equal inheritance rights and so forth, I think it would just naturally involve that they wouldn't let their fathers control themselves as much. And I think even though it's also not an easy policy, it would still work better. There are many obstacles to growth in developing countries today, be it the scars of colonial history, trade barriers, insufficient infrastructure, or a lack of governance at the institutional level. How much does polygyny or the absence of women's rights more generally hold a country's development back? So absolutely, there are a lot of reasons for continuing underdevelopment in large parts of the world. Lots of economists have worked on this and trying to attribute it to different factors. Clearly, colonial history and bad institutions plays an important role. So what's the role of polygyny specifically? I think it plays quite a significant role, but it's hard to put any numbers to it. As to women's rights more generally, I think they will evolve more naturally as technological progress happens. So polygyny allows men to have more children, which equals more economic opportunity. I think as oppressive as that equation sounds, it makes sense mathematically. But what about what is happening in the Western world? Our birth rates are dropping, as you mentioned, but it would still be in any economy's best interest to have more children being born, no? So how do you see family economics at play here when looking at North America or Europe? Pretty much everywhere in this world, we see men wanting more children than women. So in some of the African countries, it's related to polygyny. But in the Western world, right, it's still a very interesting question. Why is it that the men want to average more children? And I think that is partly related to limited commitment. So it's often that women have a higher share of the child raising burden and then they drop out of the labor force for a while, their human capital deteriorates, and there's really a sacrifice. And if men cannot commit to compensate them down the road, there's a high divorce rate in many countries, and so women just can't count on that. And the cost is just a lot higher for women, the opportunity cost and, and the future cost. A lot of that is related to social norms, division of labor, what's expected of people. I think we can change some of that by, for example, requiring parental leave policies, if they exist, to be shared equally across spouses. That's one possibility. But also just really little things like diaper changing tables in men's bathrooms would help. 
and maybe somehow coordinating the man a little bit more because I understand it is not so much fun to be the only father at the playground or the only father in the baby massage group. I love that idea and I've never really considered until now how simple something like installing changing tables could impact societal norms. What other things should policymakers be exploring? A lot of policymakers are concerned nowadays about the low birth rates. I think the first question we should ask is, is there a reason to be concerned? So as economists, we typically think about distortions. So is there something that distorts the decision to have children? That's not so obvious here. If we are in such a situation where fertility is really too low compared to what would be socially optimal, then I think government stepping in makes a lot of sense. So one policy some countries have experimented with are pronatal policies. They seem to increase the birth rate a little bit, but it's tiny. And then also better childcare facilities because that on the margin makes uh, women especially more likely to agree to have a child. But we could also think about different ways of organizing the social security system. Join us next week for an important conversation about how economics as a field and different economic tools can help us fight climate change. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.